What that means is we need to plug our national interest, at least to some extent, into the decisions we make about what we fund and how we fund it. It is the week of January 17th, and welcome to episode 114 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm John Lipsy, NSI Director of Policy, and your guest host this week. Today, Africa is a young, diverse, growing, and economically expanding continent. It has 17% of the world's population, and that will only grow over the next two generations. Africa's economies hold great promise, but also continue to face significant challenges, including from the pandemic. And the nations of Africa are increasingly seen as important partners of rising powers around the globe. We're going to do a deep dive on U.S.-Africa policy this week with Lester Munson and Morgan Vigna, co-authors on a recent NSI paper, Will the U.S. Compete with China? in Africa. Les is an NSI senior fellow and formerly served as a staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Morgan is an NSI visiting fellow and formerly served as chief of staff and senior policy advisor to U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki R. Haley. Today, we'll focus on China's relationship with African nations, its goals and challenges, and how the United States should be responding. Les and Morgan, thanks for joining this week's Fault Lines. Morgan, I believe you are our first third-time guest for the interview podcast. And Les, I think we're all looking forward to turning the tables on you here, having you on the other side of fault lines this week instead of your typical role as host. Thanks, John. Thrilled to be here. Let's get right into the challenge posed by China. What is China trying to accomplish in Africa? I think there's you know, some evidence to, to show that you know he's quite fearful of, of losing power. Um, and so now we've got the, the CCP going to have their conference in the fall, and Xi really wants his third term. Authoritarians often stay in power through oppression, which, you know, China and Xi are no exception. Um, China is the number one surveillance state on the globe. But also, you know, Xi also needs to make the basic, meet the basic needs of the economy, keep the country running. Um, and so when the One Belt, One Road initiative was conceived, first conceived, and then now we've got, you know, BRI, the Belt Road Initiative, when it was created, it was done so to ensure that China maintained a strong domestic um, focus. Um, and so when it comes to Africa, you know, China is importing vital minerals, got iron or copper, cobalt, timber, et cetera, which China needs to keep the country running. And so by not only strengthening a strong domestic China at home, she was also trying to project a strong China abroad um, and expanding its global footprint and influence. Um, this includes you know, everything from a robust military presence, you know, establishing the base in Djibouti, um, and potentially, you know, as we will probably talk about later, Equatorial Guinea on the west coast of Africa. Um, we've also seen you know, increased military engagement up north, um, you know, through Tunisia and along the eastern Met or along the Mediterranean. Um, Beijing has also ramped up its multilateral engagement, you know, leading various UN development initiatives as well as expanding its UN peacekeeping presence. So I think what we've seen here is, is a strong domestic China at home often also correlates to a strong, or a strong global China. One of the ways they've been doing that um, is with their Belt Road Initiative, of course. And one of the criticisms of that initiative has been that it um, that its projects often lack transparent financial terms, uh, can trap developing companies with unsustainable debt or other problems if things go wrong. Um, that puts that often puts China in a position to potentially exploit um, that relationship or its own interests. Have we seen that phenomenon in, in Africa? Beijing is 
quite literally like the world's most dangerous loan shark. Um, debt trap phenomenon is especially acute in Africa. Um, 80% of African countries are belong to the Belt Road Initiative in, in some capacity. And so it's not uncommon for China to push countries they're loaning money to to put up you know, sovereign assets as collateral. Um, for example, uh, China owns around 72% of Kenya's external debt, which is about $50 billion. Um, under the terms of the loan agreement, if Kenya defaults, Mombasa port could go to Beijing. Um, more recently, um, China was forced to reject allegations at the end of last year that Uganda would actually have to forfeit Entebbe Airport if the government failed to pay back a $200 million loan for the airport's expansion. And so interesting, you know, interestingly enough, though, in, in China's pushback against you know, Uganda's announcement that you know, it was you know, being held hostage here, um, Beijing stated that, quote, not a single project in Africa has ever been confiscated by China because of failing to pay Chinese loans, end quote. The key word here, though, is in Africa, right? So because we've seen outside of the continent where China did see sovereign assets, including a port in Sri Lanka, specifically when the Rajapaksa regime couldn't pay back a loan. So you know, clearly we see example after example here where countries are calling China out, saying that we didn't read the fine print and now we're screwed. So less, there's a lot that China's up to here. Let's talk about American policy. Uh, your paper describes a pretty underwhelming history for the United States and Africa, um, but let's keep with recent history. What did the Trump administration do well in Africa? Well, the Trump administration, uh, I would say, kind of had a balanced uh, pr- approach to Africa in the sense that there were some good things and there were some not so good things. Uh, you asked me to focus on the good things. The good things, I think, uh, constitute a realistic approach to African governments and economies. For the for the first time, the United States started talking a little more honestly about what we were trying to get out of our trading relationship with African countries. Uh, we took a more sensible approach, and instead of being paternalistic. And, you know, kind of quasi-colonial in our approach to Africa, we're a little more bottom line focused on mature economic relationships. Uh, and we saw as, as part of that effort, the Trump administration in uh, with bipartisan collaboration in Congress uh, produce uh, a new foreign aid mechanism through the Development Finance Corporation. Uh, that would help facilitate this more kind of open and honest economic relationship with developing countries, many of which are are on the African continent. And so we we saw the beginnings of, uh, I think, a more realistic approach to the continent, uh, uh, working with the Africans where they live and breathe and the things that they care about and trade issues and promoting American business while also promoting robust uh, African businesses and opportunities. The Kind of going back to something Morgan referenced, one of the real issues we're facing is the fact that after generations of foreign assistance between the West and Africa, the West has actually come to some pretty sensible conclusions that we will promote transparency, open uh, markets, and accountability through our foreign assistance programs. China is exploiting that what what we have done by kind of going to the base motives of some folks in some of these African governments. Africa is willing to give hidden loans, uh, provide uh, 
essentially bribes to government officials and politicians to get done what they want to get done, hiding things off the books in an effort to undermine the, the democratic values and responsible government that we've been promoting there for years. Uh, so, th so the U.S., while we've been a little more realistic in our economic approach to Africa, we need to be a little more hard-eyed about what the impact Africa or what China has had on Africa in this development sense. Thanks. So the, the DFC was, was definitely a big policy win for the Trump administration for the last Congress. That's a, uh, meant to compete uh, directly with the Belt and Road and some of these other uh, efforts by China. Um, Morgan, let's have, let's have you respond now. What, what did the Trump administration not do well when it came to Africa? So ultimately, I think it was the, the president himself who, who really shot himself in the foot, you know, one too many times with respect to, to engaging, you know, African countries and specifically African leaders. Um, I mean, everyone will recall the, the shithole country gaffe, which was, you know, incredibly embarrassing, but also highly offensive to a lot of African leaders, a lot of African countries, you know, mis something as simple as mispronouncing Namibia just sort of demonstrates you know, the unseriousness with which um, the, the White House sort of um, addressed um, U.S. policy toward, towards the continent. And so I think that really sort of undermined um, a lot of the, the seriousness with which um, many parts of the administration were really, really trying to pursue substantive policy changes um, and for the better, as, as less laid out. Um, at the same time, you know, I think there were very serious issues, particularly on uh, the democracy front, where you know there were pretty pretty egregious missteps. I mean, recognizing the blatantly fraudulent election in the DRC um, was a huge problem. Should, should we should have called it what it was? Um, you know, my former boss, Ambassador Haley, in particular, you know, went to DRC um, and laid down the law to Kabila told him there's no way you know, the United States would support him running again. And he stepped down. He, he went to the side. But at the same time, though, the election was, was a complete sham. And it was the, the State Department that recognized it. And that, that, that was a huge mistake um, and a setback for, for uh, U.S. democracy promotion abroad. Um, the second element, I would say, um, where we, we saw major, major missteps are, was the... Uh, the removal of U.S. Uh, troops from Somalia. Um, clearly, Al-Shabaab poses a significant security presence to not only U.S. national security interests um, in the region um, and, and globally, uh, but also our partners. And I think um, we should have been sort of more thoughtful with our approach there, understanding that there is always a, uh, a consideration of you know, U.S. resources that needs to to, to be, you know, carefully balanced. I just don't think this administration, or excuse me, the previous administration fully appreciated um, the, the, the necessity with which U.S. forces, you know, and the difference they made um, on the continent, or, in, or excuse me, in Somalia. So I think we heard a lot of a lot of criticism about that uh, tone and, and attitude toward Africa from um, uh, from uh, you know Vice President by the time during the campaign um, and, and and so now we're we're about a year into this new administration. Morgan, let, let's stick with you. What have we learned so far about the approach um, uh, President Biden is taking toward Africa, and, and in particular the challenge that, that China is posing there? Yeah. So I think there was a lot of hope um, that U.S. engagement with Africa 
would be prioritized when when President Biden came to office. The naming of Linda Thomas-Greenfield as uh, his ambassador to the United Nations um, was, I think, a welcome sign by the the African community. Um, She's clearly very experienced in Africa, having served as Assistant Secretary for the Africa Bureau. Um, She served as ambassador in Liberia and has, you know, maintain a lot of other roles that engage with the continent. And so I think that was a strong sign at first, but as we haven't really seen uh, much progression in terms of what a Biden White House Africa policy might or strategy might look like. Um, You know, it took a really long time for the National Security Council to get staffed up. Um, They've got some few solid people there now, but we just, that that happened too late. Um, I'll also mention that when um, Anthony Blinken went to Africa for the first time as secretary last November, um, there was nothing terribly remarkable about that trip. Um, He went to Kenya, Nigeria, and Senegal. Noticeably, he didn't go to hotspots in the country that really require U.S. leadership, namely Sudan, which is an Abraham Accords country um, that has sort of slipped into um, chaos, for lack of a better word. Um, And then we've also got Ethiopia, um, which has its own challenges um, and ongoing conflict in Tigray. Um, And so I think when we we, we take a look at that trip as a whole, it was more of a box checking exercise than anything. It just didn't deliver much. Um, I will say on the plus side, the, the Biden administration has announced that it will have an African leader summit in 2022. Um, and, you know, you'll remember that the Obama administration held the first one. So I think that this is a positive development and a lot of work will be going into the, the planning of that this year. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that will be a forcing mechanism for, for the White House to get its acting year. Yeah. And that was uh, one of the recommendations that uh, uh, your paper made. So that's that's good to see uh, coming to fruition. Less. um You've been immersed in our development aid efforts for a very long time. Should we be thinking differently about our old program? It beats the alternative, people. <laughs> You're very old and you've been doing this a long time. Um, should we should we be thinking differently about our foreign aid programs, um, it, specifically to account for the effects of China's Belt and Road Initiative? What what's what um what's new about uh, about China in Africa, and what does that what should that dictate about what should be new about how we approach it? So we've been kind of dancing around this, I think, this whole conversation. China is being very uh, Machiavellian and instrumental in the way it approaches the African continent. Is And as Morgan said, it's looking to advance its domestic priorities. It's looking to exploit resources, develop new markets, and just generally help its own economy. And if, and if at, at the time it's doing that, it kind of helps some African economies, that's fine. What it's really wanting to do is make the Chinese economy itself more robust. We have to, in order to counter that, in order to offer an alternative that is, uh, that while we don't want to directly compete with China and like force African countries to choose, we do want to offer a better way. And to do that, we need to be, willing to embrace the instrumentalization of of foreign assistance. And what that means is we need to plug our national interest, at least to some extent, into the decisions we make about what we fund and how we fund it. That means uh, if it looks like China is making a big push to get a, a, a base in Equatorial Guinea, we should be very aggressive in what we're 
doing in Equatorial Guinea and similar areas to make sure that we're boxing out the Chinese from getting what, what they need, which is against our interests. We need to connect our development programs, not completely, but in, to a large extent, to our national interests. That means we may have to rethink structures. We may have to rethink, rethink aid levels. We may have to rethink the modalities by which we give assistance. We also need to think about uh, getting rid of this kind of old idea that what we're really doing is just helping the poorest of the poor uh, with the most basic services. Those things are important, but foreign assistance needs to do so much more. We need to expand into the modern economy. We need to embrace telecommunications and digital issues. Uh, we need to realize that these African economies are growing rapidly. They're embracing technology in a way that's much faster, I think, than most Americans realize. We need to help facilitate that, that they embrace technology in these telecommunications, uh, the telecommunications sector in a way that helps the free and open system we believe in and not the closed autocratic system of the Chinese Communist Party. So we, we need to kind of infuse our foreign assistance program with, with all of these thoughts. It's, it's a big effort. It probably involves a rethink of the system on par with what happened after World War II. I haven't seen any kind of effort like this from the Biden administration. The Trump administration started talking about it a little bit. There was a willingness to kind of do some things on 5G and in other telecommunications areas that was pretty creative. The Biden administration, to its credit, has kept working on those things, but it needs to do more, it needs to kind of reimagine our foreign assistance. The challenge from Belt and Road is an existential threat to our development assistance. If China is successful through Belt and Road, it means that our programs aren't working and that our, the investments we've made for decades, for generations, are going to go to naught. So it behooves us, it's in our own interest to do this rethink. And, I, and the administration has to embrace that or something very close to it in order to really realize the potential of our relationship with African countries. I think in, in uh, what, some of what you're alluding to, I hear you saying there is, um, is some of the, uh, uh, the success that China has had with integrating uh, a lot of its um, uh, technology platforms and standards into the, into the continent, uh, you know, Huawei and, and others. Um, Morgan, let's, let's talk some hard power competition here in Africa. Uh, you've mentioned it uh, already. China appears to be taking force projection in Africa much more seriously. Uh, it's built a naval, naval base in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa. Um, they may be working on another facility in Equatorial Guinea, on Africa's West Coast, as you mentioned. How is the Biden administration responding? Is the Biden administration responding? Yeah, I think it's important to note that China's presence in Equatorial Guinea is, is nothing new. Um, China has loaned billions of dollars to, to the country. Um, Equatorial Guinea is very rich in oil and gas. Um, China takes full advantage of, 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 of these exports. Um, you know, China also invested in Beta Port, which is, you know, one of the region's very few deep water ports. And so I think there, there, there has been a relationship between um, President Obiang, who's literally been in power for over 40 years, um, and then uh, and, 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 and Beijing. So that, that relationship is nothing new. What I think is relatively new is, is China's ambition to have an Atlantic facing military presence. Um, this really came to the Trump administration's attention. Um, at least this is the first time I had heard about this was, was during the Trump administration. And um, I think one of perhaps one of the 
um, most significant trips that was never really reported on was actually um, Tony Tata's. He was the performing the duties of um, the Undersecretary of Policy for Defense. He uh, he traveled to Equatorial Guinea, um, January 9th and 10th of 2021, literally like 11 days before the administration ended. Um, and he he basically communicated to to um, the the government that you know what they're doing the deal that they're making with China is is not one that they should pursue and that the United States you know is is, is a better partner um, and no one ever reported um, presumably because you know January six was really sort of sucking up all of the oxygen um, uh, in, in the news reporting so. Um, no one really has a lot of visibility about that trip, but but it was significant because the the, the previous administration had been tracking this for, for some time. Um, now, what the Biden administration is doing about this is, frankly, trying to convince President Obiang that, you know, again, doing business with China is not in their interest. Um, and it, it, it sort of remains to be seen whether or not um, that message is really resonating. Um, you know, last April, General Townsend, you know, head of AFRICOM, um, you know, testified that, you know, China is, is actively looking um, to build a military presence along the Atlantic, and they want to rearm um, their ships with munitions and, um, and repair naval vessels. So, again, like, you've got the U.S. military that is ringing the alarm bells here. Um, on sort of the more diplomatic side, um, you had um, last October, you know, Jonathan Finer um, head over to um, Malabo and really tried to talk to the president out of this deal as well. Um, now, what I think the Biden administration is going to have to sort of consider here is that is there a deal to be made with Equatorial Guinea? Um, what what can they offer um, President Obiang that that China can't? And right now, I just don't know what that deal is or whether or not there's even a deal worth being made. Regardless, it's going to be a really hard sell. So Morgan and then Lass, um, let's wrap this up here. What what should the Biden administration be doing differently in Africa right now or going into the, the rest of uh, this first term? Should China be at the center of our uh, approach to Africa? Give us some guidance and some recommendations for how to how to move forward here. So I think if you listen to, to Africans, there's a real uncertainty about the future the United States envisions for itself on the continent. Um, Africans just don't know what the United States wants for itself. Um, and it's not clear what the United States' long-term priorities are or, or how it really intends to engage with, with Africans and, and more specifically the, the business community. Um, you know, I think this may be partially due to how our own political system works and that, you know, Oftentimes we do have a turnover in, in, in policy shifts, you know, every four to eight years. Um, but I think there's also a fundamental, you know, uncertainty um, amongst U.S. administrations on, on how to engage the continent, whereas China clearly knows what it wants from the continent and it's, it, and it's executing on that vision. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, I think Lincoln's trip to Africa was a real missed opportunity to be able to spell this out. Um, as to how the United States competes with China is, is perhaps, you know, a, a very apparent example of this uncertainty um, with which the United States, I think, tends to operate. Um, too often, uh, with respect to China, the United States um, berates 
um, countries over their their partnership with, with Beijing. And this is not just strictly limited to, to Africa. This is also, you know, Europe and um, Latin America, et cetera. You know, the United States often, you know, uses it's a standard line in a lot of our diplomats and our government officials talking points that, you know, we don't want you to do business with China. Um, this is bad for you. Right. Um, but I think what we fail to recognize is what are the alternatives? What are the solutions that we can bring to the table here? And what are the options that we can present to them to actually um, solve this dilemma, which we are so ardently um, uh trying to trying to fix. Bottom line, though, is we really need to to demonstrate why the United States is the clear choice over China right now. Um, And unfortunately, the Biden administration just hasn't really found an effective way to to do that. Foster. John, I think I think there are uh, there are several things the administration could do a little differently. First, it shouldn't make China necessarily the focus of what we're doing in Africa. It should make African countries the focus of what we're doing and and treat them uh, as partners, understand what African governments and the African people are looking for. These are growing economies. They want to grow quickly. They want to have abundant energy resources, which are required to grow at that rate. And we should not. And we should make sure that we're not letting our concern over climate change prevent them from getting energy options that are actually pretty sensible, even in the context of climate change. I'm speaking about natural gas. There is a, uh, the current administration, the Biden administration is way too willing to cut off assistance related to natural gas uh, to African countries. That's going to really limit their energy resources. That's going to limit their economic growth. That's going to have impacts all the way down the line. Uh, there are, there are other things that, that we can be doing in Africa that are sensible. We talked about this a little bit before. The U.S. government has a number of programs on the African continent. Some of them are quite good from health programs. We're fighting AIDS, malaria. We've done a a better job recently of distributing COVID vaccines and things like that. Uh, We have uh, help for economic growth. We have uh, help for democracy and governance issues. What we really need to be doing uh, is bringing those together and be more focused in our efforts on the continent so that uh, instead of doing 45 different things pretty well, we do seven or eight things really well. And and those things should be reflective of our values, but also our interests. We need to be growing African economies to build trading partners and offering them uh, a robust membership in the free and open Western model of government. That's what we should be doing. And we should, we should make it much more appealing than, than the Chinese option, which just offers them uh, limited economic growth, limited opportunities, uh, an autocratic way of governing and, uh, and crackdowns on dissent. We should, we should be through our multiple programs and the, all of the money we spend showing that there's, there's a much better way to go. Les, Morgan. Thanks so much for being with Fault Lines today to discuss your paper and U.S.-Africa policy. That's a wrap. Be sure to read Les and Morgan's paper on our website at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. You can also find that linked in the episode description. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu. 
or tweet us at Mason Natsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.